Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson in for Rebecca Shear. This week, we begin the show by turning our focus to a spot that holds a special place in the hearts of many local residents, Haynes Point and East Potomac Park. The peninsula of reclaimed land along the Potomac River has a lot to offer. Tennis courts, golf courses, great places to catch fish, and of course, lots and lots of open green space. Regular visitors, however, know that the park could use a little TLC. Whether we're talking about the buckled sidewalks or the crumbling seawall, or the historic but weathered miniature golf course. I'm here with my wife, my kids. Steve Gannon and his family are here just about once a month. The Gannon family has claimed a spot along the eastern shore of the park across from southwest DC. As foil-wrapped corn cobs and burgers sizzle on his grill, Gannon says this place has a serenity you can't find on the National Mall. It's away from all the tourists, so this is all local people here, absolutely. Much of the land here is taken up by a golf course. And Lafoon plays here a couple times a week. We keep coming back to East Potomac because the views are so beautiful. They're so D.C. You know, where else can you play? And you see the cathedral, the Washington Monument, you see the presidential helicopters. It's just um, physically beautiful here. But as loyal as park regulars may be, you don't have to look hard to see literal cracks in the foundation here at East Potomac. Like the land around the Jefferson Memorial, the park is separated from the water by an aging seawall, erected more than a century ago and starved of the funding needed for proper maintenance. Walk along the rim of East Potomac Park and it won't be long until you have to skirt a child-sized hole in the sidewalk that sits atop that seawall. But people such as Elizabeth Miller see plenty of potential here. Actually, the possibilities are limitless. Miller is the director of physical planning for the National Capital Planning Commission, the federal government's central planning body for the region. She says about 10 years ago, NCPC started working on a blueprint for upgrading the National Mall and its surroundings. It's not a plan with funding attached, but it gives government agencies and private developers something to aim for. Miller is sitting on a bench on the park's southwestern edge, looking across at the morning air traffic taking off from Reagan National Airport. What we envisioned here along the the southern edge was a widened boardwalk, like an esplanade. And with that type of work, you could go in and shore up the the sea walls and the retaining walls, um, increase the height and elevation a bit, and really make it a spectacular place for promenading. On the opposite side of the peninsula, visitors to East Potomac Park have a view of the wharf and southwest D.C. But urban planners see opportunities for better connections to that southwest waterfront. And the $1.5 billion redevelopment project underway on that side of Washington Channel right now. One of the proposals in our plan is to actually connect the southern part of the peninsula to southwest um, D.C. with pedestrian bridges. And we see these as being very, they could be very iconic, almost a destination in and of themselves. Miller and her colleagues also envision a new wide canal running across the peninsula, providing a more direct route from the Potomac River to Washington Channel and the wharf. The NCPC framework also suggests placing the bundle of highway bridges near the Jefferson Memorial underground, and even adding a new Yellow Line Metro stop at the Jefferson. Miller says this would make it easier for people to get to Haynes Point 
and allow the city to take advantage of the underutilized Jefferson Memorial grounds. And that we envisioned as being a great place for major festivals and would even help take some of the pressure off the National Mall. There's much more to the plan, including calls for a revamped East Potomac Park golf course and new venues for entertainment and recreation along the northern mouth of the proposed canal. The catch, not surprisingly, is that no one knows how much any of this would cost. Right now, there's barely enough money to keep the current seawall upright. Sean Keneally with the National Park Service says recent repairs to the seawall at the Jefferson Memorial cost $15 million, and that was just a 300-foot stretch. Haynes Point and East Potomac Park have nearly five miles to maintain. It has settled in a number of areas, and there was actually an area at the very uh, southern end of East Potomac Park, which is Haynes Point, where it's it's closed because it's deteriorated so much where it's just uh, we've deemed it unsafe for our visitors. But the people who frequent Haynes Point right now seem to like it pretty much the way it is, crumbling sidewalks and all. Just ask regular East Potomac Park jogger Josh Siegel. I think it's great that it's hidden away. I think it's also great that you can generally get away from the traffic, whether you're on bike or on foot. And my only regret is that by running this story, you'll perhaps alert other people to the existence of Haynes Point, and it'll get more crowded. Later in the show, we'll take a look back to a time before there were any crowds in East Potomac Park. In fact, we'll take you back to a time when all that green space was just mud at the bottom of the Potomac River. East Potomac Park isn't just a great spot to go jogging. It also houses one of DC's most loved outdoor pools. Throughout their history, swimming pools have been both socially and culturally contested spaces. I'm gonna love this pool to the day I die. When I tell my friends, oh, I'm going to the public pool, they're kind of skeptical about it. The demographics have definitely changed. <laughs> this is like an incredibly nice pool. This summer, we've been visiting public pools all over the city, diving into their history and culture. Now we'll take a look at one swim team that practices at Haynes Point. The D.C. Aquatics Club was founded almost 30 years ago by and for LGBT swimmers. In the years since, society has changed a lot. Back then, no state allowed same-sex marriages or even the quasi-marriages called civil unions. Now, gay couples can marry in all 50 states. But as reporter Martin Ostermule tells us, these swimmers say there's still a place for an LGBT team. It's a humid Monday evening, and about two dozen swimmers are jumping into the pool at East Potomac Park. But this isn't a relaxing summer dip. Trainer Alicia Washkovich, a former swimmer at the U.S. Naval Academy, stands on the pool deck, laying out a series of drills that'll run over the course of 90 minutes. So our first set, we're going to only go through it once. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's still a 1,200. <laughs> this is one of seven weekly practices for the D.C. Aquatics Club. As Washkovich looks on, the swimmers, sometimes five to a lane, glide back and forth in the 50-meter pool, altering their strokes and speeds according to a plan she's laid out for the session. But the club isn't just about swimming. One of the things that we kind of joke about saying is, this is gay master swimming in that order. Wong Ki Moon has been swimming with the club since he first arrived in D.C. a decade ago. He had just come out of the closet, and the team helped ease him into the city's active gay social scene. Kind of pushed me into the gay community, at least in one sense, and since I grew up a swimmer, it was something that I was comfortable with and 
something that seemed like an easier transition than to maybe just go out by yourself to a bar or something. The club's mix of sports and sexual identity stretches back to its founding in the late 1980s. The DC Aquatics Club swimming team was an outgrowth of the Washington Wetskins water polo team. That's Jack Markey, one of the swim team's founding members. In 1987, hundreds of thousands of people descended on Washington for the second annual march for gay and lesbian rights. We played water polo here in the city and then during the march on Washington played water polo with a group of California swimmers and water polo players in the autumn of um, 1987. Markey and a teammate formally created the Aquatics Club that year so they could participate in a swim meet in California the next year. But the club also served a more important purpose. It was a time not too far at all removed from the beginning of the AIDS crisis in the early 80s. Communities have been devastated, and um, so many of us had lost a, a lot of friends. And this was an opportunity for us to say to ourselves and to others that we're still here, that we're still alive, that we are still fighting and living. And fight they did. Markey says that the Aquatics Club petitioned the D.C. Council to improve the city's indoor and outdoor pools. He also says that while the city's gay community was an emerging force, the gay swimmers weren't always taken seriously. In early years, the, the city officials did refer to us as happy swimmers. The city may have put us in, in facilities that were less desirable locations, harder to get to. But in the years since, both D.C. and the team have changed. The city is now investing in its pools and is planning an extensive renovation of the East Potomac Pool the club uses for summer practices. And while the club's swimmers struggled to keep up at their first meet in 1988, by 1995 they won their first international championship. The Aquatics Club now has close to 200 members, making it one of the largest gay and lesbian swim teams in the country. Eric Zander has been swimming with the club since 1998. As the world has become more diverse and more gay-friendly, it led to more people from outside of the gay world joining the team. It's a lot more diverse. Like, it used to probably be 98% gay, and now it's probably 80%. That raises the question. In an era of rapid social change and acceptance, is there still room for a gay and lesbian swim team like the DC Aquatics Club? Jack Markey, who helped found the team, thinks so. It's also much more than um, a swimming team. It, it is a, a social organization. The club organizes charity events and social gatherings, and members support each other in and out of the pool. Camaraderie is a word I hear over and over again from the club's members. And for Brian Stevens, who recently moved into D.C., that camaraderie comes in part from the shared identity. Your conversations are a little different when you're around a, a group of gay and lesbians. You don't have to hold back as much. Although living in D.C., you don't really have to hold back much at all anyway. Um, but it is nice to have that team feeling of people that are like-minded that you don't have to explain what it's like to be gay. I'm Martin Ostermule. for a break, but when we get back, we'll talk to a man whose job it is to spot new trends in drug abuse. No one, neither your doctor, the person at the emergency room, 
or even um, the person creating this substance knows how this is going to affect the body. That and more as Metro Connection continues on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Jonathan Wilson in Fort Rebecca Shear. Welcome back to Metro Connection. As governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. As governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia. In 1994, George Allen was sworn in as governor of Virginia, one of many politicians promising to keep criminals behind bars. As our Commonwealth has experienced an epidemic of violent crime, much of it the result of offenses committed by career criminals out early on parole. Allen followed through on his promise, abolishing parole in the Commonwealth. Inmates in Virginia must serve out at least 85 percent of their sentences. But now, lawmakers across the nation are reconsidering tough-on-crime measures like this one. It's expensive to keep people locked up, and some say it doesn't help lower crime rates. Virginia reporter Michael Pope has the story. Good morning. James Green helps former inmates find jobs and housing as part of the Virginia CARES Ex-Offenders program. Today, he's meeting with a client we'll call Ella, who was recently released from prison in Fluvanna County. She's now living in a halfway house in Alexandria. How are you interacting with your peers and stuff in the house? The house does get a little hectic sometimes because... um, there's a lot of women. <laughs> Ella was convicted on a crack cocaine charge. In most other states, she would have had a chance at getting released early through the parole system, but not in Virginia. She served the entire 18-month sentence, and now she's got a new job as a sort of secret shopper for banks, rating their customer service. Has this week been uh, prosperous for you on your jobs? Yes, I have. Um, I've done about 10. Say what? You actually did 10 this week? Green understands the challenges of getting back on your feet after serving time. Back in 1991, he got three years also for a crack cocaine charge. That's a sentence he now says was excessive. This was my first time getting into trouble. Why make me pay so much time for a first-time offense? But unlike Ella, James Green served a fraction of his sentence, only eight months. The parole board granted him early release. I can look back in retrospect and say that was a smack on the hand on the wrist or the paddle to the butt that made me change my ways. And I've never looked back. As a matter of fact, I became a part of the system. Green is a success story for a system that doesn't exist anymore. Back in 1993, Republican George Allen campaigned for governor on a platform of abolishing parole. It was called Truth in Sentencing, an effort Allen now says was a success. The reality is, is the truth in sentencing is Virginians are safer and is borne out by the facts. Statistics show crime rates have dropped dramatically in Virginia since the reform was implemented. But critics say that crime is down all across the United States, even in states that still have a parole system. Allen doesn't buy it. There are probably tens of thousands of people who are not victims of crime. They are not statistics. They haven't been assaulted. They haven't been killed or they haven't been raped by someone who's been released early. Critics say what Allen did back in the 1990s is draining Virginia of resources. 
Since that time, the state's prison population has nearly doubled, and several new prisons had to be constructed to handle all the new inmates. Taxpayers fork over more than a billion dollars a year to incarcerate all those people. Justice Policy Institute Executive Director Mark Schindler says it's an expensive solution, and it's not working. Being able to earn an early release while you're incarcerated through programs, through treatment, uh, is going to, A, make make it more likely that you will uh, behave and be less of a challenge within the prison system, and more likely that you'll not reoffend when you come out. A few weeks ago, Governor Terry McAuliffe appointed a 27-member commission to review the parole system and consider changes. Even though it's still in the early stages, Republicans in the General Assembly are already organizing against any effort to reinstate parole. They recently organized a press conference to spotlight the story of John Sanders, whose son was murdered by the child's mother before parole was abolished. I cannot tell you about all the nightmares I had of even the thought of her being able to walk free again. Who would she go after next? Me, my wife, another family member, or it could be one of yours or you. Back at the ex-offender program, James Green is wrapping up his meeting with Ella. Well, it sounds like we're still on track with your service plan, and uh, you have an idea when you want to meet again? Any day next week. They make an appointment, and he walks her to the door. Thank you. You have a great day now. All right. Outside the building, which also serves as a drug treatment center, I ask about Ella. So in her case, she ended up serving the full 18-month service. But if Virginia had a system of early release... She probably would have only served something like six to uh, eight months like I did, first time offense. And she, you see that she has uh, anxiety, she has depression. It's a waste of time to have someone sitting up in prison when they can be treated and, and manage their uh, mental health issues rather than have them sitting up in prison. By next summer, people like Ella could be eligible for early release if advocates for reform get their way. The governor's commission will release its recommendations by the end of the year just in time for the start of the next General Assembly session. I'm Michael Pope. The rising crime rates in the 1980s and 90s that sparked measures like abolishing parole and three strikes laws, well, those rising crime rates had their roots in the crack cocaine epidemic spreading from Los Angeles to New York to Washington, D.C. The impact of that era is still felt today, especially by the children who grew up amidst widespread violence and incarceration related to the drug trade. Reporter Ali Schweitzer has the story of one D.C. resident who spent his childhood in the very center of that dangerous world. It's a balmy summer evening, and on this narrow one-way block in D.C., a trio of old-timers sits sipping beer and brandy on the sidewalk. A younger man with a stocky frame and an easy smile calls out to them from across the street. Hey, Bird! Hey, Bird, what's up, man? The younger man seems pretty popular around here, and guys like Bird here call him Slug. I've been knowing Slug ever since he was a knee-hopper to a grasshopper. Are you impressed with the way that he's that he's turned? Emma, Emma, oh, it's phenomenal. Did you know his dad? Yeah, I know his dad. 
Slug's dad is Tony Lewis Sr., who was one of DC's biggest cocaine dealers in the 80s. Slug is Tony Lewis Jr. This street, Hanover Place Northwest, was a notorious open-air drug market. When Tony was a teenager, he hung out at the nearby intersection of First and O Streets. It could be a very pleasant day, and that could turn tragic at any time. Somebody, we'd be like, we're standing right here, somebody would come through and just start shooting, come out that alley and start shooting. Like, I've been through a lot right here, you know, seeing people die. Like, right here, my cousin Allen died over there, you know. But Tony didn't spend all his time near Hanover growing up. When he was a little kid, his parents had plenty of money, so they moved him to the suburbs and they enrolled him in private school. What I was very clear on early in my life was that I was different. Like, we had more than the people around me, though. We definitely had things and went places that nobody else did. He talks about his father's heyday in his new memoir called Slug, A Boy's Life in the Age of Mass Incarceration, co-written by K.L. Reeves. But he spends most of the book recalling the harder times that began on April 15, 1989, when his dad was arrested, along with his partner, Rafael Edmund III, an infamous cocaine importer. After that, young Tony and his mother moved back to this neighborhood, where many of his friends and family members were living in the midst of the drug trade. My age group inherited a lot because we were younger, right? So a lot of our parents and older uncles and aunts were, were crack addicts. And so with that, my friends had to grow up so early, so fast, and, and kind of take care of themselves and, and even get involved in the crack trade, like out of survival and trying to feed themselves and their siblings. Even kids who managed to avoid drug-related violence were still shaped by it in some way. Take Tony's friend called Fat Man, who's a powerful figure in the book. He was one of the first kids in his circle to go to college, but he had deep scars. His mother was addicted to crack, and he'd been around violence his entire life. Tony says that when Fat Man was home on spring break one year, he murdered one of his best friends after an argument. This is a guy that, somebody who would, would avoid violence, but in this neighborhood, it just, you know, sometimes life-altering events find their way to you. But Tony made it through that era, and today he still lives on Hanover Place, in the roomy row house where his grandmother raised her children and helped raise him. Oh my goodness. <laughs> wow, look at this house. His life at home is a far cry from the chaotic years he describes in his memoir. I'm Allie. Tony's 35 now, and he's married, and he has a not-quite-two-year-old daughter. What's my name? What's her name? Mommy. Yeah. Who upstairs? Grandma. Yeah, Grandma. And what's your name? I can't hear you. Bella. Bella. Okay. It took a lot of support from his family for Tony to get to this point. His mother suffered a mental breakdown after his father went to prison, but she still managed to make sure he stayed in school. Tony graduated with honors from UDC in 2004. When he was about 20 years old, a family friend got him working with disadvantaged kids. Now he works for a federal agency that helps ex-offenders find training and employment after prison. He's won awards for his outreach work. His father remains in prison on a life sentence. They still talk frequently. To Tony, there's no glorifying what his father did or the things he saw growing up. That's not what his book aims to do. I wanted to write an American story that was set in D.C. and about the quote-unquote hood, but that was universal. And, and it could show the humanity and where I come from. And also, the, I guess the underlining thing was I was trying to figure out how I got here. I mean, it was many nights I sit up and think about that. And I feel like it's really the story of my generation. I do. I'm Ali Schweitzer.
On June 19, 1986, a standout college basketball player from the University of Maryland fatally overdosed on cocaine. Major County Emergency. Uh, The death of Len Bias not only shocked the D.C. area, but it changed forever how many Americans viewed recreational drug use. After Bias's death, the University of Maryland, in partnership with the state government, created the Center for Substance Abuse Research, or CSER. Its goal, identifying emerging drug trends before they get out of hand. Reporter Patrick Madden talks with the center's director about a new class of drugs that could spark the next epidemic. For the past 25 years, Dr. Eric Wish has studied Americans and their drug habits. Here's his takeaway. It just seems that we human beings want to alter our consciousness, want to experiment, want to try new things. Wish and his colleagues at Caesar are like an early warning system on the lookout for the next potential drug epidemic. And we have a a job here to inform state government and to inform the public health system and basically the citizens so that they can be prepared to to, um, deal with it. It's their job to suss out when new drugs start hitting the market. They look at drug tests and toxicology reports. They talk with emergency rooms and poison control centers about overdoses. And they've had success, like the time in the late 1990s when a new party drug known as ecstasy started showing up on the tests. At the time, it wasn't really on anyone's radar. One year, we uh, our indicator showed a rise in ecstasy use among kids. And so we fed it into state government, and Maryland had the first public service announcements on this. And then there are other drugs that seem to ebb and flow over time, like heroin or marijuana. But Wish and his counterparts are now facing a new challenge, synthetic cannabinoids and other designer drugs. These narcotics are different. The underground chemists who create these drugs, often in factories in China, are constantly tweaking the formula to stay ahead of law enforcement. That's made drug testing difficult. It was especially challenging when these synthetic cannabinoids first started appearing several years ago. We were about ready to send our first batch to our local laboratory to test for 10 metabolites. And they said to us, those are all now made illegal. You want to go to the new ones that aren't aren't illegal. So they told us to add two more. So we ended up testing for 12. And when we tested for them, what we found is if we hadn't added those two new metabolites, we would have missed 95% of the positives. So it it sounds like a game of cat and mouse, right, where you have these chemists overseas or wherever creating these compounds that are new and then you have to figure out what's in them and then you have to figure out how to test for them. It used to be that you could call a laboratory and just say test for this regular panel. Now we literally have to call uh, almost a dozen different locations around the world and talk to toxicologists and say what's out there, what should we be testing for. Sometimes the drug is so new that there's no test for it. The challenge of identifying what's in these new synthetic drugs is more than academic. There have been a handful of deaths around the country from synthetic cannabinoids. Here in D.C., trips to the ER for suspected cases of synthetic drugs shot up nearly 900 percent last month over the previous year, according to The Washington Post. The problem, again, is no one can be sure about what's in them. No one, neither your doctor, the person at the emergency room, or even um, the person 
creating this substance knows how this is going to affect the body. When they take this drug, they're literally playing Russian roulette with their body. Wish says his research has found that young people in D.C. are especially at risk. For the first time recently, we collected specimens from juveniles who were going through the D.C. court system. We found synthetic cannabinoids just about at the rate of 20%. So about one in five of these kids coming through the system and being tested were um, using synthetic cannabinoids. What do you think should happen? We know lawmakers are taking action. They're going after retailers. What do you think the best approach is? Because you've talked about how chemists seem to be able to always be one step ahead of the law, and that has its own unintended consequences of more uncertainty, right, into, into what these chemicals are. We have to deal with the drug epidemic the way we've done with every other drug epidemic. You don't know exactly which button to push. You have to push them, push them all. So you need the law enforcement approach. You need the treatment. And with, with the synthetic cannabinoids, it's especially important that we educate the public. So education, 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 I think is the answer here. I'm Patrick Madden. Pulling up some corn and a little carrot too. Do low fly and aeroplanes about 100 feet high. Drop a bunch of bales or something and some hit me in the eye. Bales of cocaine falling from low flying planes. I don't know who done dropped them, but I think I'm just saying. Bales of cocaine falling like corn rain. My life changed completely by the low flying planes. In a minute. How, in the late 19th century, a stretch of the Potomac River was transformed from stinky mudflats to a popular picnic area. When Washington got so hot and there was no air conditioning, people would come down here with their bedding in the summertime and just sleep around Haynes Point just to keep cool. That's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Jonathan Wilson in for Rebecca Shear. We now head back to East Potomac Park and Haynes Point. It's a place that for many Washingtonians embodies natural beauty. But if you look back at its history, it isn't really natural at all. Few people know the story better than Gary Scott. He's a retired National Park Service historian who worked out of an office at the park for more than 35 years. He says the park's history begins in the mid-1800s. That's when the city was coping with a Potomac River very different than the one you see today. In spots, it was accumulating so much silt it was too shallow for some boats and too swampy and smelly for residents. That's when the Army Corps of Engineers and Colonel Peter Haynes, sound familiar, came up with a plan to dredge the river bottom. But they still had to find a place for all of that mud. So Colonel Peter Haynes, who was uh, head of the Office of Army Corps of Engineers, he devised an idea of piling it up here, which is East Potomac Park. And the first thing he did was build a seawall around it and create an island. And so we're sitting now on an island, and the, the seawall is right out there at the Potomac. It's the same seawall that Colonel Haynes built 100 years ago, from about 1882 to about 1890. And then once they had the seawall, then they started pumping the mud and the silt into what became East Potomac Park. And so now they had created an island. And they also created, on the other side, was the Washington Ship Channel, which uh, supplied uh, ships into downtown Washington for trade. 
and they had to have a way then to get the water in and out of the ship channel. So Colonel Haynes and the Corps built a tidal basin, the tidal basin, and there's an inlet bridge where the water comes in from the Potomac and an outlet bridge, and this flushes out the uh, Washington ship channel sort of like a toilet. And so this was, you know, considered an engineering marvel of its day. So in terms of when this place started to become used as a park, how long did that take? The early 20th century, uh, Congress debated what to use it for, and the, the people prevailed that it should be a recreational area, which it has always been since the very beginning. And the first thing they did once they had the, the land secured, they built a road around it called uh, the Speedway. And because in those days you could speed your carriage or your automobile and take it out and run it, you know, as long. And so you could run around the island. That Speedway then became Ohio Drive, which still goes down to, to the point, which is now Haynes Point, named for Colonel uh, Peter Haynes. What kinds of people came to the park? I mean, when it was first established, and what was here? Was it just open land? It was open land, and then, but they landscaped it into a golf course. And at the end, there was, a, in the 1920s, they had a little uh, tea house that the Girl Scouts ran. And so you could go down there and have a little meal, sort of a little, you know, hamburger or something at the tea house. I've seen pictures. It's a beautiful little it, building. It was a building. We had to tear it down about 20, 30 years ago because it was flooding out. And the big Washington floods, it would, you know, it would flood out all the time. So, so the tea house is gone, but the side of the tea house is there. Uh, this has been used mostly by wa uh, local Washingtonians. Uh, there is quite a fishing population along the river. Local African-American families for generations have fished down here on Haynes Point and uh, East Potomac Park, and you can still see them, uh, you know, uh, with, with, with their fishing rods. In uh, the early 20th century, in the summertime, when Washington got so hot uh, and there was no air conditioning, people would come down here with their bedding in the summertime and just sleep around Haynes Point uh, just to keep cool. The golf course is obviously very popular, very affordable, famously affordable, um, but there is always talk of, of revamping it or turning it into something more impressive. Uh, what do you think of those plans and, and do you think it'll ever happen? Well, uh, about 20 years ago, there was a plan to take out about nine holes and turn it into a picnic area, and the Park Service did that. And the golfers got so upset that they, they united, and one went up and saw Tip O'Neill up on Capitol Hill and had it changed around, and those nine holes were put back in. Your office was here for many years. How do you regard this place? Do you feel it's underutilized, or do you feel like it, it's good the way it is? It, what it is, I mean, from the Park Service standpoint, it is a very large open green space in the city, which sort of allows the city to breathe. And uh, you know, keeping it, you know, in green grass, you know, is, is what the Park Service has, has always wanted to do. Although there have been schemes from time to time to develop it, and I'm sure as the city, we see building all over the city right now, that, that you know, those, uh, those pressures will continue. But it is a listed uh, landmark. It's on the National Register of Historic Places. For instance, it has uh, right out here, it has the uh, early putt-putt golf course that was built in the 30s by the WPA. Uh, so it has some historic structures, these old uh, golf course uh, uh, 
field house and police station. They're very early 20th century buildings, so, so it is a historic area. That was retired Park Service historian Gary Scott. If you'd like to see photos of that old Girl Scout tea house, we've got them on our website, metroconnection.org. You'll also find sketches of a vision of the park's future. As we heard earlier in the show, Haynes Point is beloved by joggers, swimmers, cyclists, and golfers. But one sport you can't play there, it's one of the most popular sports in the world, watched by billions. And now the sport is exploding in popularity in our area. Lauren Landau headed to Montgomery County to find out why. In India, cricket is sacred. If cricket is there, we don't see any other sports. Cricket, I guess, it's more like a religion in India. Cricket, more than a sport, it's a religion. Here in Montgomery County, immigrants, mostly from India, are keeping that fervor for the sport alive. In the past few years, dozens of teams have popped up here. This week, cricket players like Bajal Shah told the county planning board they need more space. We're not even able to meet the demand that we had for five years back. But we also have to plan for future. The board voted to build a new, dedicated cricket field at South Germantown Recreational Park. Later, when there's funding, the county will build a second field. Until then, players gather at Strawberry Knoll Local Park in Gaithersburg. Who's batting? Yeah, we got the two batsmen. Open up at a high regular age. Opening bowling, opening batsmen. Bajal Shah grew up playing cricket. He says giving it up would be unthinkable. For people who grew up back home in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, or, or to some extent Australia, New Zealand, England, wherever. They grew up in an environment where cricket is in their DNA. A few years ago, Shaw and his friend Ashish Patel co-founded the Maryland Premier Cricket League. We started this league in 2010 with five teams. And um, as of now, we have about 26 teams, but about 500 plus players are within the 10 mile radius in Montgomery County. Through community outreach, they attracted more people to the league. It wasn't the first in the D.C. area. We knew a lot of people in the in the community. And so we started gathering folks and, you know, five and then 10 and 15 and 20 guys. And then there was a league being played in Virginia across the river. And there were a couple of teams traveling from here, 45 miles one way. So we reached out to them and said, hey, why don't we have something in our own backyard and start a league here? Cricket isn't new to American soil. Colonists played the game long before the signing of the Declaration of Independence. But these days, it's far from mainstream, and it can be confusing. Watching a practice, Shaw does his best to walk me through it. This guy's a batsman, and the bowler is running from the other end, trying to hit the ball. right? And then the three sticks that you see, these are called wickets, cricket wickets. And the bowler's goal is to try to hit the wicket. And the batsman is trying to hit it hard as far as he can. Out in the field, players try to stop the ball and throw it back at the bowler or the wicket keeper. The ball looks just like a fuzzy yellow tennis ball, but it's heavier and harder. In this league, the guys play without protective gear. That's a big shot. So he's trying to hit it out of the park. See, it went all the way there across the boundary. That's a four run. 
Is there ever any concern that you're going to hit the ball over to that playground? That's <laughs> Not at all. This ball won't travel that far. This ball won't. On the other side of the park, players suited up in helmets and thick pads practice a different version of cricket. Good shot, Jitu. Someone tells Vubhav Agarwal to be my bodyguard while I record sound of the hardball players practicing. It's temporarily his job to make sure I and my microphone don't get smashed. The ball is like a rock, but round. Uggerwall commutes from Towson to play in the Washington Cricket League and says the field he's playing on at Strawberry Knoll is better than others. But I would still say it's still small. <laughs> we can still clear it out. Sometimes you just wonder how we're going to react people when the ball goes in their backyards and on the road. So a bigger field would be better. Oh, much better. The interest in cricket and the demand for more places to play it in Montgomery County hasn't gone unnoticed. The 2012 Park Recreation and Open Space Plan estimated that, by 2022, the county would need four dedicated cricket fields. Casey Anderson is chair of the Montgomery County Planning Board. He says all cricket fields are not created equal. It's not just a question of finding a patch of ground for somebody to, to uh, set up the pitch, but that the more serious players need turf that's cultivated in a particular way so they can play it safely and play it well. Like golf or tennis, you can't just play cricket anywhere. The Parks Department has uh, evolved quite a bit in a really short period of time to understand that this is a reflection of the changing needs that we have in Montgomery County. He says diversity makes the community a more exciting place to live. And Montgomery County is definitely diverse. About one-third of the county's population is foreign-born. More than 21,000 hail from India. This is about making sure the parks are for everybody. That it's not about what you like to do in the parks, not about what I like to do in the parks. It's about the whole community. It's not just about being inclusive. Anderson says the promise of cricket fields could be a great incentive for moving here. More than half of Montgomery County's Indian-born residents over 25 have a graduate or professional degree. In 2013, their median household income was $134,000, nearly 38% higher than the county average. Some of them are electrical engineers, they have, they have very high levels of skills and education, and the ability to attract them and make them want to make Montgomery County home is really important to our future economic competitiveness. Back at Strawberry Knoll Park, the guys are more concerned with competitiveness on the cricket pitch, though they are also thinking of the future. Three years ago, Kush Singh got together with some buddies and started chatting about how they could get their kids into cricket. Three friends came up with six kids. Each of us had two kids. And we were hoping and praying that we will get a few other kids at least so we can make a team. These days, the Germantown Kids Cricket Club is no backyard operation. We have over 100 kids. And the oldest player we have is 15 years old. They rely on the same facilities as the adult players, which leaves them competing for turf and time. The county planning board's vote this week means one new dedicated field will be ready in about three years. But Singh says it would be great if the county also set aside cricket fields just for the kids. He'd even like to see it taught in county schools. I'm Lauren Landau.
If you're a regular WAMU listener, you've probably heard this guy. Nearly 2,000 immigration activists and undocumented immigrants are here at the White House. Reporting on this. The U.S. Border Patrol estimates that as many as 90,000 unaccompanied minors will be detained on the border this year. That's WAMU's very own Armando Truel. For months, he's been covering the young undocumented immigrants who started crossing the border in record numbers last year. It's now estimated some 9,000 of those young people have made their way to the D.C. region, fleeing violence in El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. They're often reunited with family already living here. But they don't just need a roof over their heads. Many are still dealing with emotional wounds from their journey north and the violence back home. Now Armando has the story of a new effort to heal those wounds through art. Three teenagers from El Salvador are honing their improvisational skills at Bethesda's imagination stage, creating a story from whole cloth, each adding a new twist to the tale. Playwright Miriam Gonzalez helped run the Oyeme after-school workshop. The goal being to give them a, a safe place to come and play, laugh, imagine, explore their stories and their memories and their experiences. Oyeme means listen to me in Spanish. Gonzalez says the dozen or so teens in Oyeme were initially shielding their emotions behind defensive walls. This is 15-year-old Giovanni. He's been in the U.S. for about a year and a half. Like, I don't know you. Why would I tell you, why would I tell you my feeling? Like, if I don't know you, I'm not going to tell you my feeling. I'm not going to tell you none of my story, you know. They've suffered a lot. They've got big stories they're coming into the room with um, where they've been violated. Um, They've witnessed things that no young person should witness. Giovanni explains his initial distrust disappeared when other kids started opening up. Everybody started saying their feelings, their stories and everything. Then I was like, damn, everybody trusts each other. I'm going to tell them something about me, you know. And how did that feel? It felt good. So good, in fact, that Giovanni invited his 17-year-old sister, Anastasia, to come to Oyeme. I'm a really shy person, and I had to talk, and I have to, you know, say my ideas. Sharing those ideas would eventually fuse the teens into an extended family from El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala, giving them perspective, says Anastasia. It makes you realize a lot of stuff, not just... You know, there's like there's stories after your stories and they're being worse than yours and better than yours. One of those worst stories was told by 16-year-old Florencia, repeatedly abused physically and sexually during her trip from El Salvador less than a year ago. Florencia began to question everything, including her life. How can people say God is with you when right now he's abandoned me, she would wonder. As the teens slowly broke down their emotional barriers during the final phase of a 10-week project, they began to craft their personal stories into monologues. Bueno, yo llegué hasta aquí porque quería conocer a mis padres y pasé por Guatemala y muchos lugares were videotaped. Anastasia says seeing the loneliness, pain, and joy reflected in others' stories showed her how to deal with her own challenges. That I don't have to give up, that there are better things in life that, 
eventually you're going to get to a point where you're going to be like, wow, I went through that, but I never gave up. Florencia, the abuse survivor who felt abandoned by God, says speaking out about her feelings has helped her cope with her negative emotions. Now I know I'm not alone anymore, she explains. Janet Stanford is the artistic director at Imagination Stage. We wanted to start very gently with workshops that would allow the young people just to enjoy some theater games and to get to know one another and to open up their imaginations for the joy that it will give them. Encouraged by OEMS success, Stanford is raising funds to expand the program next year. Oyeme 2 will involve youth playwrights and directors in crafting and performing a full-length play. The work will be based on the life experiences of these Central American teens. Stanford has done similar work in the past with rape survivors. The result, she says, was transformational for the artists and the audience. I've seen people who are ashamed of their past experience come out after a performance and own their own experience with pride and uh, recognize themselves as survivors and heroes rather than victims. Stanford says she created Oyeme as an ethical and artistic response to a humanitarian crisis, one she heard about on the radio. I was driving to work one morning and listening to WAMU when I heard you, Armando, talking about the crisis and all the young people that were coming specifically to live with relatives and families in Montgomery County. And while I had been hearing about the surge and, and you know, everything that was going on, I, it hit me suddenly that day that it was, it was really in our neighborhood, it was in our community. I'm Armando Truel. And that's Metro Connection for this week. If you missed part of today's show or want to listen to past shows, subscribe to our weekly podcast. You can find a link on our website, metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and is used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. We list all the music we use on metroconnection.org. While you're there, you can find links to our Twitter feed and Facebook page so you can stay in touch with us all week long. I'm Jonathan Wilson, in for Rebecca Shear this week, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.